Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Revenue Builders podcast. I'm John McMahon, and my special guest today started as an inside sales rep at CaseWise, moved to an account executive role at IDS, which was acquired by Software AG. From there, he was a major account rep at Cognos, and then moved into his first management role at Parisma, which was acquired by SAP. After SAP acquisition, Brian moved to Optier, which was also acquired by SAP. <laughs> then Brian moved to Click, where he was the VP of North American Sales for four years before becoming the president of Click. After Click, Brian moved to App Dynamics, where he was a VP of Sales, then to ThoughtSpot as the executive VP and chief revenue officer. Today, and for the last two and a half years, we find Brian McCarthy as the Chief Revenue Officer at Rubrik. Brian, welcome, man. How are you? I'm good, John. Thanks. It's uh, Thanks for spending time with us today. Absolutely. Trip, trip down memory lane listening to that. Uh, I remember like it was yesterday, uh, that first case-wise job. For, first time I remember reverse engineering how to figure out how to make some money. <laughs> I, I, I'll never forget um, calling my brother-in-law, his name was Rich Christie, who's been a wildly successful enterprise software rep for a lot of years, places like MuleSoft for six years and Atiza for six years and, and so on, just really successful in his career. But he got, he, he got me an interview right out of school, this company called CaseWise. And, uh, I remember calling him 30 days later saying, Hey man, um, I think I figured this thing out. Um, I don't, what, what I figured is for every 30 dials I make, I get a hold of 10 people and every 10 people I get a hold of, I book three meetings and every three meetings I can close a deal. And it was very transactional. Right. Uh, and it was, it was before SDRs world. So we were actually like, you know, closers. And I remember him saying, brother, if you just show up every day, you're going to be successful. The problem is most people just don't show up every day ready to work. That's so true. And what were you doing? Banging out like a hundred phone calls a day? Absolutely. It was very simple. It was like, how many is everybody making? All right. If I do X amount more, I'm going to be the top one. And I was young, John, I was 20 years old. I finished school early and graduated in three years. Not, not for, not for any, uh, you know, brilliance, but my, uh, <laughs> my, um, uh, wife, who's now my wife, was my girlfriend at the time, but she was a year ahead of me. And I figured out if she left, she was from Louisville, and I figured out if she left school without me, uh, I would lose her. So I figured <laughs> freshman year, I was like, I better, I better uh, get through school quickly here. Um, and so uh, I ended up, I actually sold for Northwestern Mutual. The one thing that's probably not on the, the resume before I, while I was in college. Okay. <laughs> and I, 
and I sold to like professors and people. Uh, and then I got into, you know, software. So I was young and I got promoted to the field like a baby, man. I was 22 years old. I was wow. Field rep. So very fortunate. People believed in me, gave me opportunity and uh, made the most of it. And that's a big move, especially going from just pounding cold calls to unreal. Even though, even though you were a closer, to going now yeah. outside and looking at people face to face, especially yeah. in bigger companies where they may not be one one sole buyer of your product. Right. Exactly. It's it a little political. Yeah. So I looked at your LinkedIn. You grew up in the Philadelphia area. I did, John. I'm uh, one of twelve kids. Man, well. Big Irish Catholic family. Wow. Number God 10. Your mom and dad. Yeah, no kidding. Number 10 of 12. Um, and uh, grew up uh, right, in the, uh, right on the uh, outskirts of Philadelphia, a little tiny place called Jenkintown. Um, and uh, w- seven boys, five girls. Uh, we, we grew up uh, the old Irish way <laughs> and yeah. uh, throw another potato in the pot uh, kind of a thing. But I had... Um, I had my, my dad was a, uh, a janitor, um, and a taxi cab driver. Um, he also worked down the docks on loading boats. He went to 10th grade. Um, my mom actually just started, uh, you know, high school only went to like ninth grade, uh, at Cardinal Doherty. Uh, you wouldn't know it. Smartest, smartest, uh, uneducated person, uh, that y'all ever meet knows more about anything, uh, wildly successful in her own right. But, um, she, uh, uh, my dad actually passed away when, when we were young. So my mom was widowed with, with a bunch of babies. Um, wish dad died. He was 51 when he oh, died. Uh, died at a, Mine died yeah. At 40. yeah, yeah, it's tough. Yeah. It makes you oh. grow up quick. Yeah, it does. I was, I was, uh, young, I was just about turned seven. Uh, so it was, you know, it was three, five, seven, nine, you know, on, on the way up. And, um, you know, when you go through that, like two things can happen, uh, especially with a big family, you can either splinter and kind of all go your own way. And there's a lot of yeah. resentment. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, why did this happen to us? Um, or you kind of come together and we were fortunate and blessed to kind of all come together. Um, in fact, all 12 of us live within 45 minutes of each other. 50. I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. So big, yeah. big holiday celebrations and birthday celebrations. Yeah, ab- absolutely. My mom actually lives with me. She's lived with, lived with my wife and our five kids for four, the last 14 years. We've wow. had her um, living with us, which has been a blessing. Um, and uh, I'm sure, I'm sure at times I drive her crazy. I'm a, I'm a little type A, but uh, she, uh, uh, she, she loves it. I think she loves being around the kids. So now what about sports fan? You are Eagles, Flyers, Sixers, Phillies fan. Yeah. All yeah. So, sorry to, sorry to tell you, John, I have <laughs> all, you know, all four, uh, sports we in college, you know, I grew up rooting on the fighting Irish being a McCarthy growing up here, uh, uh, you know, from, uh, college sports. And then, uh, was a, a four for four guy, like the Flyers, the Phillies, Eagles and Sixers, um, really, uh, love baseball. Uh, so, uh, Philly's probably, probably my favorite, uh, you know, then probably the Eagles, uh, and, uh, Flyers playoff time. It's been really rough following them the last couple of years. So, so, uh, 
when they get when they get um when they get good, I'm one of those bandwagon folks that that show up uh, come playoff time. I don't know if you're too young to remember a guy that played for the Phillies named Mike Schmidt. Oh yeah, of course. Um, he's in my golf club up here in Rhode Island. And oh wow. Uh, so I don't know that he's in the club. I had just joined and a guy that wasn't a sports fan says, let's go play golf tomorrow. And I'll, I'll go get two other guys. And he says, well, this one guy, Mike, you met at dinner last night. And the other guy's name is Mike. And he, remember, he's not a sports fan. So he says, yeah. well, the guy, guy's a little older. And he told me that he played baseball. Well, <laughs> does the guy have a last name? And he goes, Schmidt. And I go, what? Mike Schmidt, he hit 550 home runs in a non-steroid era. What do you mean? Yeah. Baseball. The guy was a vacuum cleaner at third base. Yeah. And had a rocket for an arm too. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So good. Hey, let's, let's get, let's jump into this a little bit. So, you yeah. know, I've, I've read and heard a lot about you and yeah. the way in which you manage people. And I think it's been foundational to your success. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you think you manage people and what is, why is it a differentiator, you know, for you in terms of not only managing people, but, you know, training and enabling people? Yeah. Uh, great, uh, great question, John. So I, I kind of think about management. Um, maybe it's not unique, uh, but at the time, you know, early on when, when I first started leading, I thought it was fairly unique um, in that uh, I didn't think anybody was going to listen to what I had to say. I was so young, man. Like I was a baby coming into leadership, 29 years old. I was young. I had happened to have been very successful, had a string of like worldwide rep of the year, four or five times. And, you know, but I was, uh, I was still a baby. And I remember feeling like, why, why are these folks going to listen to what I have to say? Um, and I had this thought process around um, radio, right? Like, and, and uh, the engineering behind it, the mechanics and in radio, right? Like uh, one, one component sends out a signal and then there's, you know, a receiver on the other end. And uh, if they're not dialed into the same frequency, uh, you all you hear static. You, everybody's heard it. Hey, it's, it's not tuned in. You know, I have the wrong frequency. But what it, the same beautiful like Mozart or Beethoven or Bach could be playing, the same incredible music could be playing, but all you hear is white noise if the receiver isn't tuned in to the same frequency as the outputting, um, you know, that, that that's delivering, uh, the music. And so it, it occurred to me, I played, I, I played, uh, basketball kind of growing up. We grew up, we boxed and fought and all that kind of stuff. So, so it was a different, uh, I grew up different probably than most people, in my uh, generation, but McCarthy family and the McMahon family, we also boxed and fought. So. Yeah, there you go. So I, I fully understand it. Yeah. Uh, my, my, uh, my, um, way of growing up was to figure out how to listen. Right. And, um, and, um, understand what was being communicated to me, uh, and in the ring, it's 
survival and uh, in hoops, it's playing time. Um, and I was a well, I would say well coached, maybe not the best athlete, but I, uh, coaches love me. And, um, I did, I, I knew what needed to be done. I listened well and executed and, uh, in sports made up for probably some of my lack of athletic ability. Uh, and, uh, and so what I observed was there was a lot of leadership or, or, or management that never took the time to ensure that their team was dialed into the right frequency. And so they were saying all the right things, um, communicating all the right messages around activity and, uh, you know, qualification and, uh, you know, PG and, and being thoughtful around your time and all the things that are important. But the, if you listened to, to a bunch of sales reps, they had a bit of disdain for leadership. And the reason for it was like, oh man, they don't care about me. They're, they're, you know, yelling at the scoreboard, so to speak, as ever, you know, everybody's heard that, uh, or they're, you know, critical, highly critical. They're, they're just telling me, uh, what's wrong. And, uh, and what occurred to me is that they were sitting there on a different frequency and all they heard was white noise. And so the foundational element to giving to, to ensuring people could be well coached, well cared for, uh, you know, and progress their career, I felt was to love them. And, uh, and people, you know, over the years have felt awkward. First time Brian McCarthy says, Hey man, I love you. Or, Hey, love you guys. Love you all. And, uh, everyone's like, man, that sounds so crazy. Um, and I always have to communicate what I mean by it. And what I mean by like, I love you isn't some romanticized love or <laughs> something like that, but it's, it's rooted in, um, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas's, uh, 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 theological uh, truth of love, which basically is to will the good of another. That's it. Uh, to love someone is to will the good of the other in a benevolent sense. And I always teach that and communicate it like, hey, I love you. I care about you. I will the good of you. I want you to be able to achieve your hopes, your dreams, your goals. And so when I'm coaching, I'm talking to you and I'm finding areas to help you. It's not because, uh, you know, it's not selfish. It's not because, hey, this is going to help me and I just want to drive my bottom line. And, and there is value to the company or to the leader as well. But it's actually rooted in empathy. It's rooted in I care about you enough not to watch you drown. Uh, and so um, for that person to listen to me, they have to first believe that I care about them and they have to believe that what I'm communicating to them, whether they agree with me or not, at least it's coming from a spot and an intention that is for their best interest. And that has been, I think, foundational to whatever role I've had in, in, in leadership. Yeah. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit and go back, you know, so I've always believed that if you can't prove to people that you have their best interests at heart, which is what you left with, then they really feel like you don't care about them. 
Yeah. And there's too many leaders that treat everyone cookie cutter. Yep. So they believe that everybody is just like them. Everybody has the same strengths and the same weaknesses. And what you know, experienced leaders find out pretty quickly is that each player is completely different. And they have a different set of skills and a different set of weaknesses. And it's your ability to develop that person, develop their weaknesses and their skills and their strengths in order to get them, make them successful. And that's what caring is. You can't say that you care today, especially in software. And you've seen it where you have foosball tables and ping pong tables and beer taps. And, you know, don't, don't we care for our employees? <laughs> no, not really. You, you can have those things. There's nothing wrong with those things, but you have to train people so that they don't need you so that they can overcome those deficiencies that they have. That's true caring. It's the old, yeah. you know, teach a man how to fish. Totally. Story, right. That's basically what it is. So let's just go back to listening skills. I mean, for me, I've always found that listening is a real skill. It's a difficult skill because you have to pay attention so hard to what everybody says. Talk to us a little bit about your listening skills and how that might have helped you throughout the throughout your career. Um, yeah, it's great. I think some some of my listening skills, I would say, is uh, you know. Uh, nature, nurture kind of a thing. Like, you know, you, you grow up in the 10th of 12, you, you, you sit on some steps trying to hear downstairs to every word that the adults are saying. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, uh, you, you're sitting at a, at a kitchen table. You're listening a lot more than you're, you're, you're speaking, uh, especially when you're, especially when, when you're, you're 10 12. Yeah. <laughs> when you're one of the runs. And yeah. so, uh, you know, I think part of that, was easier for me um, to be observant. Uh, I would say nat um, naturally or have grown up to be very observant. Uh, I, I listen with my eyes and my ears. I see how people react to what I say. Um, I see how they react to what other people say. Um, I listen to tone of voice their cadence. I listen to, uh, what they don't say often. Um, but I think for me, it was a bit, uh, natural, uh, for me, it wasn't something that I heavily trained myself in. In fact, if anything, what I've, as I've gotten more mature, trained myself, um, to listen more the, the, because it's easier for me to go off at the mouth and communicate and talk and, and have often been put in a position to speak. Right. And people defer and look to you in certain roles, right. To speak. And so it's actually been practicing a discipline and a little bit of self mastery to, and I'm not great at it, but to try to, um, you know, be even more focused on not being the first to speak listen, uh, try to be more efficient with words and allow others, uh, to communicate. Uh, but the curiosity, uh, is something that has been in me forever. I studied theology and history in undergraduate, uh, like 
not exactly a skill set that anybody, it wasn't like I was going to go be a priest or a teacher. Uh, I just was super interested in both topics and I was curious. And I, I went to school, not, um, not because I was looking for what it was going to do or like propel me to something. I just was interested in those topics to learn. Uh, and I've always kind of been curious. I read a lot. I, I like everything from architecture to music to uh, books. And uh, so uh, listening is like, you have to, I think, care about, care enough to, to, to understand what somebody's saying. Uh, so that's, that's a big component. What about your gut? As you could you climbed the ladder, have you found that you're dependent upon not only listening and hearing what your head says and the data that people tell you, but also what your gut is telling you? Yeah, well, that's great, man. Um, right? I mean, a lot of times people come into my office and say, hey, we got to make a decision. They give me the data and I just, I hear them. Sounds like there's a logical solution. But my gut just is something in my stomach that's just like, oh, yeah, I don't know if something's missing here or something's off. And I just don't feel like I want to make the decision now. And they ask, oh, when are you going to make the decision? I said, I don't know. I could be on a run. I could be driving home. I could be in the shower. It'll come to me. You know, I love that. It's true. Uh, I'd say. I think there's something there with gut. Um, uh, that you're aware that there's you're li- certainly listening or observing with your gut that there's something missing and um, and you're waiting until all the pieces are in pa- place so you can make make the right right call. Um, I tend to be uh, very uh, decisive. Uh, so if I have sk- some skill and some weakness, well, uh, yeah, I'm zero fear in decision-making. Like, um, I always kind of feel like there's no decision I can make that I can't figure out how to unmake at some point. Uh, you know, I'd rather, I'd rather execute, but. That's, but I want to stop you there. That's so key because too many people in leadership positions make a decision and get their ego gets tied to that decision. They get data that says they made the wrong decision, but they just don't want to change it. So it's so to your point, I've always found it's okay to make a decision based upon the data that you have. Yeah. And if more data continues to come and you realize, hey, I made the wrong decision, get your ego out of the way and just change it. 100%, man. <laughs> like, so, so what you're hitting on right there um, is so critical, which is uh, you t- talk about ego, but it's it's really secure, like people being secure in themselves that they're they're not defined by their decision or what other people think of themselves. I don't need to make all the right decisions. I don't need to be the smartest person in the room. Um, but, you know, decisions need to be made. I'm going to make them. And if I'm proved wrong, I'm going to course correct very quickly. And, um, you know, not that you're on a yo-yo, but, uh, you know, thoughtful, thoughtful speed has value. And, uh, you oh, know, for sure. So, sure. so, so I've, I've erred on that, but when it comes to like gut observability, um, I tend to, I, I tend to be like, I always look at the data. I always look at, but my gut is seeing other things like that. The data doesn't see at times. Right. So there is something 
uh, to it. And if you're really listening, you're listening to what the data tells you. You're listening to what your eyes are telling you, what you see, what your gut tells you. And, you know, if you're great at building organizations, you're, you're also listening to key people in key spots. Like for me, JP, you know, we, we talked about right in the pre, like listening to people that also have eyes on things and data to be able to, uh, you know, bring all the data points in and then quickly execute, I think is, is critical. Yeah. What about, you talked a little bit about, we touched on the managing piece. What about the enabling piece, the training and development of people? Yeah. So at Rubric, like, uh, we did something, I think, that was a bit different than, that had been done uh, in that I took somebody in like JP Bowen that had never been officially in enablement, uh, although that's fundamentally the job of a, of a leader is to enable and to coach and develop. But he uh, was the best at that. And I saw that one of his skills uh, as a leader, in fact, his best skill at a leader was breaking down complex things and making them simple and easy to digest and to be able to facilitate that, um, you know, across a large group so that they could uh, internalize it and uh, be, and get better. And so then my best sales pitch was convincing uh, JP uh, to, you know, leave the field. He was running the Americas for me at, in the past at ThoughtSpot, had a number of CRO opportunities himself that he was evaluating uh, once I decided I was going to leave. But I, you know, I convinced him that uh, not, I shouldn't say convinced, I walked through with him. We talked, we dialogued about what, what he really wanted out of his life and uh, where he found his most fulfillment. And he found his most fulfillment in seeing other people be really successful and coaching and developing them. I said, dude, what if we could go build a $50 billion company together over here? Like what if we could build a machinery um, that was rooted in changing people's lives that was invested in uh, teaching people how to lead leaders and leaders of leaders who've never been second line before, never been third. How did that work? Uh, never really have, uh, you know, bringing people in to the fold that never had an opportunity to sell because they were, they were in a different pond, so to speak. Right. They, they, some they, of the unique things that you do do in training yeah. that, that you might consider, well, this is pretty unique. It's not just classroom style. It's uh, yeah. It's different. Well, we, we immediately uh, were a force management, uh, you know, uh, customer. Uh, we, uh, we love uh, Kaplan and team. He did an incredible job, but it, I did, I had implemented that a number of times and it's always so impressive, like amazing. Right. But it's the muscle memory of building it, uh, building the muscle internally to institutionalize it that either makes it a wild success or not. Right. You can have the you world. Force, you got to force people to be involved in doing it. I think exactly. So there was a, Along their lines, it was a Benjamin Franklin quote that I always remember. He said, tell me and I forget. Teach me and I may remember. Yeah. Involve me and I will learn. I love that. Yeah. Really I, I saw that. Involved. So you can't, the classroom, the one to many stuff. Yeah. 
that's the teach me and I forget, you know, yeah. tell me and I forget. It's when you get people, you know, up to whiteboards or in role plays where they're involved, those types of activities where they really have to know the material and practice the materials that they really start to learn. Totally. So uh, one of the things that we did that was differentiated is that we basically took our successful sellers, pulled them out of the field and put them into enablement, uh, a number of them. Um, you know, a guy was in majors, Brian Zissel, who went to club two years in a row. He wanted to move into leadership, said, Hey, that's excellent. You're, you're moving to enablement. You got to learn how to teach, coach, develop. And, uh, when you're good at that, then you can go into leadership. We've done this in out. Uh, I think that's so, so powerful. Sorry for cutting you off there. That's yeah. so powerful. You take, you don't have to take people out of the field and stick them into, um, these sales ops or enablement programs and leave them there for life. They basically, right. it's really good if they come out, if they're a top-notch sales rep, you know that they have the headroom that eventually you're going to promote them to oh. a manager. Have them understand how to really teach and coach a whole different group of people for like a year and a half or so. And then they have that, that, that in their DNA. And now when you put them into a management role, they do such a much better job. Totally, man. So, and we've done that, I think pretty well and moved them back into the field. We've also even taken leaders out that want to be second line leaders and brought them into enablement in the same, the same uh, scoop, a guy named Jason Etri, who, who was a second line leader of VP, Will Kent, who was a leader at Mongo for, for uh, you know, and Dremio brought him over. Um, and so with the idea that, all right, now you're going to learn how to coach coaches. You're going to learn how to develop leaders. And when you're good at that um, consistently and you're consciously competent at it, now you can go lead leaders. And so this is uh, like, you know, a, a programmatic approach to it. But one of the other elements is we don't just have enablement as part of like, hey, we have a great boot camp or an onboarding program. It's, it's infiltrated into the, the field. Our, our, you know, JP and that whole enablement arm are on opportunity reviews. They are, uh, they do, we do regular leadership development on the one-on-one, how to run the one-on-one, the one-on-one cadence, what that looks like. Um, you know, the, the forecast call, how everything from how you break down your day, how a leader runs through its day, how, how, you know, how to prepare for PG run all, all the, um, the cadence components. That's like the teaching, but they're actually jumping in to support the leaders in running the actual uh, like opportunity reviews in the QBRs, walking them through the QBRs. It's not like they're in some far off place and they do training and then they go back. They're they're they are as much engaged in the day to day of uh, with the leadership team of running the regents. And that was like it's like an extra hand on the steering wheel, so to speak. But what you were doing is we're Ben Franklin in it. We're, we're actually teaching while doing it because uh, the, you know, for a lot of leaders going through the one-on-one cadence that I was asking them to do was our, was like crazy to them here. Uh, and 
So some of them are afraid of it. They've never done it before. Very afraid, man. They they were they, they felt like the you know some folks I think think the one on one is a forecast call, um, you know, and then uh, and then their forecast call is like a team call, and nothing really get, gets done. The real forecast call, all that really happens, you know, in their one on one, is they talk about the one deal that's most likely to close, right. uh, and you know I always say that. The, one of the sales leaders' biggest challenges is they have a Superman complex. They want to put on the cape and fly in at the end of a sales cycle and like and and celebrate a win, and that's the least value they can provide. Um, and instead, our job as leaders is to pick up, do the dirty work. It's to jump into the messy. It's go go at the very front end of the funnel and spend time coaching and developing. And so we broke down our one on one our cadence. Our one-on-one has nothing to do with forecast. In fact, if you're on the forecast, you're on the wrong cadence because that's a different call. Uh, The one-on-one call is specifically on stage one, early stage pipeline, stage one, the very beginning of the pipeline. And it's reviewing PG activity and preparing for for those meetings and making sure that we're converting on the new business meetings into stage one and from stage one into stage two. And then once we get into stage two, we have a different conversation around winning the stage. And that's a different forecast call are all around the components of getting in and out of, uh, of those stages. But the one-on-one is critical. All we're looking at is helping that seller figure out now their territory, what are they going after? Why are they going after it? And um, and make sure they're successful in converting that PG into meaningful pipeline. Yeah, I want to go back and add, make, be a little more explicit on what you said there for the audiences. A lot of sales managers want to be involved in the really big deals that are on the forecast. The problem with that is that typically some of the reps that are doing those have already done 10 big deals. They've done the They've had 10 or 20 economic buyer meetings. They know how to pull off the POV. See, the only reason that manager is going on those sales calls is so that he could basically shoot the bear and come back to the campfire where everybody's circling around and say, hey, look what we brought back, you know, and be part of that. Versus to your point, there's other reps that might be newer, maybe never had an economic buyer meeting. And one's coming up and spending time with them, understanding what do we need to accomplish in this EB meeting? How do we talk to the champion about what's going to go down in that EB meeting? That's where they should be spending their time. And that goes all the way back to what we talked about before, is trying to look at people's strengths and weaknesses and improve their weaknesses. So overall, your sales force is a lot stronger. Yeah, absolutely. You said it perfectly. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that that movie a number of times. And I think one thing we're also leaving out to want to add a little, be a little more explicit on it is um, Brian's talking about a guy named JP Bolin, who was a VP of sales at another company, has a ton of experience, could easily be a CRO anywhere else. And what JP gives Brian is a sales ops person that very few companies have. Because when you talk about sales ops role, 
it can mean different things to different companies. And most people just stick somebody in sales ops that knows how to manipulate Excel spreadsheets and Word docs and just takes orders from the CRO, but they don't truly understand and have any insights into what's going on. Whereas JP is not only involved, as you said, in all those different aspects of training and developing people, but he's also your eyes and ears into some of the things that you may not be able to see. And because of his experience, he sees things the same way you see things. And that's invaluable feedback to you to really help you do your job. Yeah, absolutely. Key, key, key element. I highly recommend. I I told uh, Ashim, you know, from Greylock and Ravi from Lightspeed to been blessed to work with both, both of those guys for a few companies now. And I told them both, I said, don't hire another CRO. Unless they're bringing, without asking them the question of who you're bringing in for your leverage execution play, because like I wouldn't, I wouldn't do this job again without, um, you know, someone in that role that can provide you that execution element of it. The thing is, man, the the CRO gig, especially at scale, you know, we have five hundred some sellers, you know. Uh, you know, did over a billion in, in billing. So, so, so like, you know, um, at scale, you need three, four of you guys running around doing this I was thing. I going to say that. Yeah. It has to expand and you need as a CRO, as your organization gets bigger and bigger, I kind of think of it as like a house. When you first started as a startup, you might've had one or two pillars that held the organization up. And then as it grows, you need five or six and you need a second story and you need more pillars in there. So exactly. you constantly have to add pillars to help you do your job. Otherwise, things are going to start to fall on your plate. Exactly. Which really shouldn't fall on your plate. And what does that say? That says I'm either lacking a leader in that spot or I need to replace a leader in that spot. hundred percent, John. One of the other things to that, which I think that you just hit on, that sparked my mind, that if you know, young in career or up and coming leaders or moving to senior leadership for the first time, if I could speak to that, um, it, it, it's rooted in security. Like somebody asked me one time, like, and I always hate the question, what's your superpower? I'm like, ah, I don't, I don't consider it myself a superhuman. So I don't really have superpowers, but someone asked me that. And uh, I said, if there was going to be something that I would say that I had, in spades that helped me. It was, I was a very secure person. Uh, and, uh, I always give my mom credit to that. Cause after my dad died, she like loved the insecurity out of me. I was a, you know, we were poor, had nothing. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, big ears and trying to fit in. It was like, I was like an awkward young kid. Right. And, uh, I remember sitting on the porch with me, like constantly reinforcing that I was loved that I had great purpose and that, uh, that I was good. That was worthwhile. So whatever, all, all the work paid off. And so what that enabled me to do as a leader is I can go hire every, whoever I, I, I have zero like insecurity to be like, Oh, I don't want to hire another CRO. What if they know something that I don't know? Like I want to hire people that know all kinds of things I don't know. I want to put surround myself with people um, that will uh, raise the level of the game. And in general, I operate as I'm building 
orgs and, and things. How do I hire myself out of jobs? Like how do I build the company so that it can operate and run in such a way that it no longer needs me in it. And that's like success for me. And I don't feel like it doesn't create any kind of anxiety in me. And I would encourage people to like figure out how to uh, like zero in on that and, and remove any insecurity that, that makes its way in. You want the best e-staff members, the best CMO, the best, you know, chief people officer, best chief legal. You're not the, nobody's your adversary, like, you know, in company building, surround yourself with winners and people that can go execute and raise the level of the game. Uh, and, and, and you'll, you'll benefit from it. Yeah. At the end of the day, you're the captain of the team or the head coach of the team. And, your job is to get the best players and coaches on your team. And then if you do, you're going to look like a freaking hero. Right. And you also hit on something that's really critical is that when is a leader's job done? A leader's job's done is when they've been able to prove that they were able to recruit people, train and develop those people to take their spot. Yeah. That's when it's ultimate success. You know, you you've heard it and I've heard it where these guys say, well, I'm leaving XYZ company, so it's going to crumble. Really? Well, then you're a freaking horrible leader. You didn't develop anybody to take your spot, you know? And you even see that on first and second line levels. I used to say to guys, we're, we're a growth company. We're growing 100% a year. Here's all the extra spots that based on numbers, simple numbers, here's the extra first, second, third, fourth line manager positions that are going to be available. Now, the only way you're going to get to that next level is if you can prove to me that you were able to recruit, train, develop someone that can take your spot. Love that. Yeah. So the beauty of that is if a first line manager looks around and has four people that in the next year, that's never going to happen. Guess who they recruit next? They recruit a superstar. Yeah. You know? Yeah, absolutely. It changes their filter also. 100%. Totally. Hey, let's switch gears a little bit. Sure. When you think about sales process, and remember, we have a lot of younger people on the, on the, in the audience here. What do you think is the most critical stage or step in the sales process? Now, everybody's sales process is different, like rubrics is probably yeah. different dynamics and it's not much, but it's a yeah. little bit different than, than thought spot. But what yeah. is the most critical stage or step that you look at and say, Hey, if we can successfully get through this step or stage, I'm going to start to feel pretty confident that I could forecast that deal. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, so the cheat question for me would always, it's funny, it'd be like, if I could cheat, I'd say, hey, it's pre-stage, it's PG. PG is the most important thing. I, like people uh, people joke that it's going to be on my gravestone, but like PG gives you confidence to run a great sales cycle, gives you courage. And uh, and so ultimately, uh, the, the pre-stage one is the most critical. Uh, when I think of building... Um, a company, there's really two elements, especially as you get to scale around like, Hey, how are we going to, uh, you know, we have a three-year plan, right? So we're at scale. Here's our three-year plan. We're going to have to go tell Wall Street what the three-year plan is. This is what it looks like. Um, it's built off of really two things, capacity and productivity. 
it. Yeah. There's two levers in here. And so I can either a very expensive, you know, sales and marketing as a percent of, uh, you know, uh, revenue, if I just focus on capacity, but that's an element, I just hire more and more heads, but that's what zeroes you in on productivity and on productivity. There's three levels, three things. That's it. That you can improve productivity. You can improve productivity by uh, increasing your win rate. You win more deals than you're in. You can in, uh, increase productivity by having more deals per person to close, right? So you're uh, that's one of your other levels le- levers. Or three, you can increase productivity by demanding more premium for your goods and services. So you have three things. You can either sell more than your peers. Uh, you know, that increases the productivity. You can close at a much higher rate than your peers, or you can build pipeline faster than your, your peers. And so the first piece of that, I would say, is the pipeline. Then when I look into our sales stages, we're really, really, really focused, John, on winning the stage. This is something I've talked about at, at nauseum, I think, for the last, not just at Rubric, but in the past companies. Um, your job isn't to sell software. Uh, that's not it. Your job is to focus on winning the stage, you know, and in winning the stage, we enable champions uh, to go sell for us when we're not in the room. And when champions like champions sell software, we, we enable them. And, uh, and so I would say uh, the thing that, in, that uh, moat, if I was going to answer the question in a very like particular direct way, I would say the thing that impacts that productivity the most is the ability uh, to influence the required capabilities is probably the number one component in, in the stage that allows you to demand a premium for your goods and services and improve your win rate more than probably anything else. Because if you can uh, uh, do that properly, then you're aligning the sales cycle to where your uh, core differentiation shines. uh, And you're also doing it in a way that's enabling your champion to have a clear path to be able to differentiate for you and to buy for you. Because if the requirements have been influenced in a way that aligns you, that champion can execute that sales cycle more quickly. They understand uh, those requirements, what's needed. And, uh, you know, in a, in addition to what's needed, what the quantifiable value of, uh, of delivering those, uh, required capabilities, uh, are. So for us, I would say, uh, it's stage two (laughs) and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll wrap this in a bow real quick. So I had, uh, this one leader one time tell me, Hey, I, I think we have, um, you know, a challenge, um, in stage four. And I said, well, why is that your focus and, and your, your challenge? And he said, wow, I think we're losing control at the end of the South cycle. And, uh, and I was like, Hmm, I said, listen, in all my years, I've never found anybody lose control at the end. Uh, you know, I'm fairly sure Let's go back in the stages. You know, it's an output of what you lost control in early in the sales cycle. Yes. And, and it's in stage two uh, for us. What that means is in stage two to get out of stage two, 
you had to have access to the EB. You had to have already uh, uh, validated and tested a champion. We had to have three Ys that were rooted in quantifiable value. And you had to have influenced the required capabilities and validated that in an echo back to the EB before you move into the prove it, the POV, stage three. So stage two for us, if we win stage two, this is just, I'm going to give you actual numbers. We win 83% of every deal that ever exits stage two. That's uh, because it's focused in on, uh, on those, uh, you know, exit criteria. Uh, And then stage three, stage four, stage five, build on it. But it's really at that stage two, that early stage, uh, getting it right, that ensures that you can go win, uh, win the deal. Yeah. And when you look back, I mean, if we really simplify it for people, what Brian's saying is the reason you got to lock down that criteria, that decision criteria, is that's basically the customer shopping list. And that shopping list says, we need these specific capabilities in order to solve specific pains that we have. And that those differentiators align directly to those pains. And if you can lock that down early in the sales process, it really says that the customer is buying what you're selling. I used to always wonder when I was in for myself early on, I used to think, are they going to buy what I'm selling? Or are they buying something else? You know, like, how do I know? And the only way I knew was my differentiators were in there because I was good enough to align those to the pains that they had. So, and then to your point, now you have to have that champion that can help you lock down that criteria, make sure that it doesn't change. And that's the way you can kind of be in control because you can't be in control by yourself in a sales process. You need a champion to be in control. They can formalize and finalize that criteria and help you carry that criteria through the economic buyer meeting and into the POB, where if you can, again, keep that same criteria, you're almost guaranteed to win. So I always think that that stage two, to your point, is so mission critical because that aligns to the you getting the economic buyer meeting with the champion. And if you can get them to say, yes, we will test to these capabilities in the POV and they're set for your product, it's a home run. A Absolutely. Home run. So only other thing I want to go back on and add on when you talked about productivity is you talked about like win rate, deals per person. Um, I like to also add recruiting and training because, you know, your productivity first gets up quickly because one, you recruited the right people. Yep. Two, they, you now onboarded them and trained them so well, which you do that added, that decreased their Ram time and got them into the product, you know, productive rep category really quickly. And that helps to boost your overall. hundred percent. Yeah. And where it shows, so, so where that shows up, John, is they have the ability to uh, to win, to build pipeline, and to chart like have increased the size of the ACV, right? So like we're because it's a constant game, right? Uh, so I'll never forget when I broke this down for 
the sales or when I, when I first got here and everybody was like, Hey, everybody wanted to be a hundred percent growth company, but nobody actually wanted to split their territory. They all wanted all the accounts, uh, and no, no segmentation. And, um, I, I basically walked them through it. I said, well, you know, there's only like two ways that you can grow either productivity grows, which is essentially quota, right? I get more or capacity. So if we're going to grow hundred percent, and we don't want to cut territories, we're just going to double quota every year. Like, is it, and everyone's like, like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Like, yeah, it's, it's impossible. It's literally just a mathematical equation of like what your outputs are. So then it comes down to, um, you know, you're constantly onboarding in a high growth company to your point, shrinking the ramp time, getting them productive faster than ever. But then you're, you're not done. Like it's a never ending thing. You have to raise the productivity bar on even your ramped people every year, or else you're not going to continue to be able to, to grow. Uh, so it is, uh, Productivity is like the number one element, uh, like to focus in on if you want to build a company at at scale. Uh, you know, you got to get folks ramped fast to your point, and then you got to get there, they, there. Can be no end in sight in getting better. Uh, it's a constant getting better game, uh, or else yeah, the mechanics don't work. All, it shows up on all the financial statements. Exactly. Per rep, average productivity per rep drops in any quarter. The financial statements are not going to look that good. If totally. It goes up, almost every number on the financial statement is going to look really good, too. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so a lot of people don't understand it, you know, when you talk about average productivity per rep and how mission critical it is. And to your point, like you said, you have headcount, you have productivity. So headcount's what the CEO is giving you. So you're limited by that. And productivity is something that you have an effect on. And that's the most meaningful piece. And that's what all sales leaders need to understand. Absolutely. And then what kills you in that whole productivity thing, as you've seen, is churn, right? Attrition. That's, that's why I like to go add productivity to part of it. Because if I... I mean... Re- recruiting to part of it. Cause if I recruit the wrong people and everything else is perfect, I'm going to start to churn some of these people. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Number like when you're literally going through the plan. So this is helpful for folks that are listening to think about like how plans are built. You have a attrition assumptions. You put it on there. You have productivity assumptions, productivity per head, ramping and ramped. And you have capacity plan. You want to win. You impact those three elements. It means you hire faster. You, you get to capacity faster than you were. You get the headcount. If I can get there faster and recruit faster, I have more sellers on the street. I'm going to do more revenue. If I can impact attrition and I attrit 1%, 2% under, now I beat plan. If I can get productivity and I can beat productivity by 1% or 2%, now I'd be planned. You want to be planned by 10%. It actually is as simple as going back to when I was at CaseWise and it's yeah. 10, 3, 1. It's like, this is how, this is how you beat plan consistently, you know, as you're shaping companies is you have, baseline rooted in history. This was our productivity last year. Here was our attrition rate last year. Here's the South pass. Here's how long it took us. Well, how do you want to beat it? 
oh, we got a new better than we did last year on each of these elements. And uh, that's that's what happens in these hyper growth, uh, hyper growth companies. It's actually a simple model. And you know, and I know that it's very hard to pull it off. So but all because all those elements that we labeled underneath ramp time, productivity and churn um, are difficult yeah. for most organizations to get right on a continuous basis, especially when you're scaling well over 100% a year, right? Yep, 100%, 100% you're right. So let's talk about metrics a little bit, right? We touched on it in uh, for the first time in a podcast with Carlos Delatore, and you and I just talked about three pretty meaningful metrics. But what metrics do you kind of track during the quarter to say, Okay, it's still going the way that I thought it was going based upon my forecast to the CEO. And then after the quarter, what are some of the metrics that you look at to say to review and say, ooh, that wasn't so good. We might have to make an adjustment there. Here's some other ones that were really positive. Yeah. So um we look at uh you know a lot. Uh we know kind of going into a quarter, what our uh, conversion looks like at each stage. So how much at stage five will convert, how much stage four, how much stage three, stage two, how much is, uh, how much pipeline is created in quarter and closes in quarter and how much uh, pipeline is brought in in quarter. And I, and I know which quarter, I know how that looks every single quarter. <laughs> so, uh, so let's stay right there because there's so many companies I see where they say, well, we're going into the quarter and we have 4X, you know, in pipeline. And you know, and I know that doesn't matter because the 4X could all be in the first stage of the sales process. Exactly. So we're, de- we're dead. So yeah. I hate, I always hated that. And I'm really glad to hear you say, let's look at where these deals are in each stage and understand what our historical conversion rates are for each stage. And then how much are we going to get out from those different stages as time moves on? Exactly. Because the probability changes as time moves, right? Like when there's 12 weeks to go in the quarter and a deal might be in a certain stage, and you have a 50% chance of getting it out in the quarter with six weeks to go, that may only be a 25% chance. Right? Exactly. So yep. I'm so glad to hear you discuss that. Yeah, we, we break it down by week, actually, uh, John. So every week of the quarter, uh, we have a different conversion because based around historical, at this stage converts at X in quarter if it's at this stage in this week. And so... Um, uh, we, uh, that's, re- it's, you know, been really, really helpful for us. We also then look at days in stage and if there's any movement, not only days and not, not days south days, you know, uh, south cycle, we certainly look at that. That's, it's mostly retroactive, like, Oh, how long did it take to close? How long did it take to lose? But I focus in on days in stage. How long is it in stage two? And if I see a day movement or two days on average, now we have a lot of transactions, right? I say, hmm, okay, what's going on? Why are we getting kind of, uh, why, why are we slowing down at stage two this month? Kind of a thing, right? And how do we, uh, you know, convert that? And it enables us to be very proactive before, before you get to the close one stage around Focusing resource, time, energy, and um, and sales leadership 
on uh, the right areas that you can make impact on you know, while you're in quarter on some of, uh, you know, some of these challenges. We all went through a period of time. R- rubrics fortunate from a product market fit perspective, right? Ransomware, cyber, uh, it, you know, threats and the ability to be resilient in the face of, you know, uh, cyber bullies and criminals is top of mind. Yet, like most folks over the last year, I've seen um, a, a friction at towards the end of a sales cycle, right? Towards the end is an extra friction on uh, on every dollar that's focused yeah. on and and so we didn't wait really until it was like oh we didn't get surprised because we're looking at it per stage we were like man stage four is taking a little longer this month so what can we do how do we how do we address that before before we're kind of out of the quarter how do we make sure we double down on eb uh you know coming back to the eb and our close plan crystallize and crisp up our quantifiable value make sure that um that uh uh why anything uh doc is super tight and uh and test test uh our champions test them that they're 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 good and they have a clean clear path um and then we are also able uh if you're in that spot to kind of adjust things around like hey we we need even more pipeline if uh, you know, if you get a little bit uh, of friction. Um, and so uh, we've been able to adjust uh, front end PG targets, you know, so how many new business meetings uh, do we need a quarter? Well, just because you need to eight uh, last quarter doesn't mean you ate this quarter if uh, the impact on the South cycle changes, right? And, and the buying behavior, you might need nine, uh, you know, to be able to have the same outcome. Uh, and so th- there, there are some of the metrics we look at front end new business meetings, uh, meet leading indicators of like meetings per week and, uh, and new business meeting set. Then we look at conversion of new business meeting into stage one. How often are, are they converting into stage one? And then we look at each stage conversion, uh, rate and the days in stage. So they're, they're the, the biggest metric points to us, but it also, John helps us figure out where to coach. So to your point was like, absolutely not yell at the scoreboard. It's like, well, not everybody uh, has the same challenge. Some people are having trouble finding the right persona for their MBM. They're dialing for dollars. It's not an effort issue. So where, so your coaching to them isn't going to be do more meetings. It's going to be, Hey, let's take a look at your territory plan. Who are you going after and why, why are you prioritizing this? And let me understand what stories you're using uh, that you're telling and what pain are you, uh, you know, positioning here? Oh, walk them through it. If they're improved, if they're booking a lot of MBMs and they don't convert to stage one, you're coaching something else. Let's go through your first meeting deck. Help me to understand what you're doing. What are you doing, SE? What story are you anchoring on? What's your prep? Let me look at your point of view before you go into the meeting. If you're stuck at stage one and it's not converting to stage two, then we're looking at something else. Talk to me about your champion plan. Help me understand uh, you know, your three whys. How detailed? Is it quantifiable? Had they signed off on it? Like. That's the point of coaching. If you're not looking at each step and each stage, 
you, you become a noisy gong just saying all the things versus the poignant things that are going to help them improve the area that they in particular need help with. Yeah, I agree. You know, you look at each transition from, you know, discovery to scoping, scoping to the economic buyer meeting. Somebody thinks they're doing a good job, but they can't get to the economic buyer meeting. Okay, maybe they did all their homework, but they still haven't found the champion, you know. Right. Economic buyer meeting where they say they did, and then they fail in the POV. Okay. Yeah. So you actually didn't have the economic buyer meeting because you really didn't have a champion. You had a coach. And you didn't really have the decision criteria locked down or the or the competition's champion had a had a stronghold over the POV. So yeah, there's so much that goes into it. But to your point looking at those different steps in each stage and each stage on its own. And what does it take to convert from one to the other? And do my people have the knowledge and do they have the skill set to get there? So sometimes they can have the knowledge, they can know what to do, but nobody's actually gone in the meeting with them as a leader. Let me show you actually how this happens. I'll do it the first time. Second time you're going to do it. Let's, let's, let's go do this together. That's one of my favorite questions on a forecast call to the leader is um, when you were there, what did they say? <laughs> uh, 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 yeah, no, I, wasn't there. I wasn't at that meeting. Oh, well, when the last time you spoke to them, <laughs> there's a CRO that told the story in front of a whole bunch of people, but I won't say who it was, but he was working for me and we had a big pharmaceutical deal going down. So I called him and I said, Hey, tell me about this Pfizer deal. And he said, well, I won't even name the name of the rep. Well, Joe says, and he tells me what Joe says. So I call him a week later and I say, hey, how's that deal going down at Pfizer? Well, Joe says, and I said, you know, if I always have to call you about your biggest deal in the quarter and you're only going to tell me what Joe says, what the hell do I need you for? Dude, exactly. <laughs> I hung the phone up. Well, uh, and I didn't take his call for the next couple of days. Yeah. And he still remembers it. It had a huge effect on the way in which he went back about his business, you know? Yeah. Because if he doesn't know what's going on in the biggest deal in his forecast, I have to question whether he knows what's going on in a lot of the other deals in the forecast. Right? Yeah. I mean, it just means that you're going to be picking up the phone calling Joe. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what happened. (laughs) Hey, let's do, I got to be appreciative of your time. This is going really well and, and I really appreciate it. Let's talk just forecasting. Yep. You good? Yeah. yeah. it's It's the beginning of the quarter. You got to forecast the number of the quarter up to people and your qualifying forecast being presented to you. What information, I know there's a lot of information to look at, but what key information or indicators are you looking at before you compile a forecast and say, that's the one we're going to do? Yeah. Um, I, uh, it's the answer slightly different over time because, you know, over time, you you also uh, develop uh, a deep understanding of how everybody else forecasts as well. So, uh, so, so <laughs> I know you, where you're going. You yeah. you adjust accordingly um, to that. But I tend to 
like I said, I look at the forecast. Um, my team, if you talk to my team, they'd be like, man, he's like, he has like a science approach to the forecast. Meaning I'll push, I push everybody through the forecast, uh, conversation, you know? So, okay. Um, uh, at my level, we don't get through all the deals, but, uh, key deals I go through and I say, okay, I want to make sure it is the rep committing like, uh, mechanically deals make up the number they're calling. That's, that's a, like a number one element for me. So if somebody is committing, let's say a million bucks and yet they don't have a million dollars in deals, uh, um, that's the first kind of what do you like at the rep level, like not at the leader level. At the rep, I want to make sure every rep is committing, and what they're committing is backed up by an actual deal. So what I do is I have um, what's called in the number or uh, actual a deal based commit and roll up. So every deal ha- has a check mark, meaning this deal is in your committed number. Um, and the reason for that is because what I don't want to happen is, um, Hey, I, I can, I delivered my number, but not with any of the deals that I said I was going to close <laughs> with all these other deals closed, the deals that was, they all slept. Uh, and so we track which deals make up your number. And then I go through, this is my own, uh, probably, uh, uh, problem neurosis, but then I go through the deals and I look at which stage they're in at the beginning of a quarter. And I say, okay, so out of your deal roll up and you know, we do, we have made a thousand deals in quarter, but I'm looking at them and I say, okay, well I break it out and I see how much of your deals are in stage two, stage three, stage four, and stage five that are in commit. And then I focus in on stage two and I say, you're, you have a deal commit of this, but you haven't, yet exited stage two. How's that possible? Right. So that, that'll be, that, that'll be, you know, the questions in the forecast is how do you get to stage three? Like, you know, you got to get to the EB, you have to confirm. So how you, how you forecasting this? And usually if they're forecasting in stage two, it's because existing customer, they have access, they have a step, they know it's a budget, but they have some new product that we're going to POV. So, so but mostly it's usually kind of late stage. And so the, what ends up happening is for us, uh, I'm forecasting what I know is tight from uh, uh, the in stage, in being called from a deal, qualifying out things that I think are a little bit loose. But then I'm also looking at uh, what we call gap deals, which are all the other deals that are moving through the South cycle. And I happen to know how much you're going to close based around, you know, his history. And then, uh, and then I'll go in and I'll put a focus on stage and say, okay, here are the big ones and the key ones. Let's get all over it. Here are the questions that we need to drive through uh, to make sure that we close this step this month. If we don't move past this step this month, I'm going to pull this one out. Not going to count on it. So like they're the, uh, a, a bit of the the mechanics of it. Every uh, leader um, rolls up their commit and it's deal-based. Every leader of leader, it's deal-based 
and, you know, kind of all the way up. So there is nobody that just calls a, a number. We don't, we don't have any of that. We, nobody has a, a number based. Uh, they're all based around deals that are in there. Now, I happen to know based around all the, the data that I go through, of we're going to close X amount that nobody sees yet. It's not even in the, it's not in the forecast yet. It's, it's, it's pipeline. It gets created in quarter and closed in quarter. I know what that is. I, I, I apply some judgment there. Here's uh, the deals that are going to convert it at these stages. I apply that. And then I zero in on what it, what's the difference that we can make to in, improve the probability and improve uh, our chances of closing these. And we focus in on uh, those at my level, at least on those as, uh, as improving. And, and we kind of go stage two to stage three, you know, earlier uh, to later. Um, and if we can't move them, they they're out of they're out of the quarter. I mean, if we can't move it from stage two into stage three by end of month one, it's it, it, it's it's out of the quarter. So that's kind of how we run it, and uh, it's it's worked out well. Yeah, I used to do that too, but cut it. I tried to also cut it different ways. So I yeah. could also say, you know, every quarter for the last number of quarters, there's been a certain percentage of new deals. Yeah. a certain percentage of existing deals. Yep. And then a, a certain percentage of dollars that came from new and a certain percentage of dollars that came from existing. So what I would do is go into the forecast and take all the new and existing and see if that added up to the number of like deals that I needed to get on both sides and what was the dollars that came from those, right? Yeah, I love that. And if I didn't have that, I'd be like, already know like your gut could tell you, well, if the ASP hasn't changed on any of those for the most part, yeah, I already know I'm in trouble with 12 weeks to go or 11 weeks to go. Totally. Like, I might mean, have to go get more new deals, let's say. Maybe I'm good on existing, but I have to go get more new deals to, to make up the percentage that comes from those from new deals versus existing deals. Yeah, and 100%. Also, then check productivity. You know, what's the what based upon this forecast, what's it telling me about these productive regions and what where they are? And then how many new reps are moving from ramp time into productivity and, can, and what kind of contribution can I realistically count on from them? Right. And then I look at the weighted forecast. Like you talked about the fact that you keep a weighted forecast. Yeah. So I look at that and say, historically, you know, with 11 weeks to go all these deals that are in these buckets, how much of that is going to translate, you know? So I tried to cut the deal by deal stuff like you were talking about, Yeah, like three or four different ways to give me a, a good feel. And, and another point that you brought up earlier, but I don't think it was very explicit to, to yeah. you have some leaders that consistently over forecast and you yeah. have a number of leaders that consistently, you know, wear rose colored glasses and never get to the number. Yep, exactly. I used to actually say to them, look, don't change. Cause if, yeah. you, if you change, you're going to screw up my forecast. <laughs> That's what I was getting at. Like, I, I don't know how, like, uh, I know if somebody, I know where they're going to land, 
much better than what they're putting into their clarity. Uh, you know, I have a much better idea of exactly where they're going to land plus or minus. And I usually tell them too, as I'm going through, I'll go through them. Like, okay. So here's where each of your people are. Here's the range. Where's is this? All right. I think you're going to be about two and a half million more than you're calling here, but okay. Got it. Uh, and they, they, they'll be like, Hey, should I raise? I'm like, no, it's your forecast, man. I'm like, don't ask me, but I should do your foot. I just know where you're going to end up. And then don't you have the artists, the ones that kind of like, you know, most people have to work, you know, 20 deals to, and you went through the numbers earlier in the podcast just to yeah. get like one. And then you have these art what people that I've always found is a, it's a small percentage of Salesforce, but they're artists. They do things subconsciously that other reps need to be very, it needs to be very regimented. And then what they'll have is they'll have two or three deals that they keep in their back pocket. They're never putting it into the CRM system or into Clary. And they just put it in when there's like four weeks to go and they know the paperwork's going through the, the I know. company. So you have to count on those people too. Exactly. Those people drive me nuts, but you love them because you they love deliver. <laughs> you have to love them. Exactly. Well, Brian, I feel like we went over an hour. Thank you so much for your time. I feel like we could have kept going. I got other subjects I'd love to talk to you about. So maybe we have to have you back another time. But yeah, I'd love to. Brian McCarthy, thank you so much for being on the Revenue Builders podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, pleasure, pleasure, John, being on. And thank you. Uh, uh, I'm sure you get it a lot. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but thank you for all you've done. Uh, you know, as I, as I opened up, I said, I remember years ago, uh, reaching out to you right after Mark Thurman started at Click. And he's one of my good buds. But I reached out and said, hey, how does it feel? How does it feel to... Uh, be teaching people that never worked for you, uh, you know, uh, like myself and so many others. And you re graciously responded in minutes, but uh, it is amazing, you know, how many folks uh, continue to learn uh, from you. Certainly, uh, John and Cap John Kaplan and team. Uh, but um, you know, uh, I'm grateful for you investing in so many people that have gone on and invested in me. So, uh, thank you. God bless you. Uh, love the conversation. Be well. It was fun. All right. And thanks everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 